Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rock Band's podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Malaberti. Today on Beatles Part 7, we're talking about the magical mystery tour period in 1967. But before we begin, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening. Follow us on Instagram at Rock Band's Podcast. Instagram is still the primary way I'll be talking to you all, but we are also officially up and running on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube to reach people who maybe are not on the gram. So be sure to follow us there and share Rock Band's podcast on social media with all your rock and roll loving friends and family. And if you have any questions or feedback, don't ever hesitate to DM me. I'm pretty good at getting back to you guys. Okay, Rock Band's podcast, Beatles Part 7. Like I said last week, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band was a colossal success, not only in its time spent on the charts or the critical acclaim that it received, but it came out in May of 1967, coinciding with the peak of the hippie movement, The Summer of Love. All of a sudden, life went from black and white to color. Weird was the rule. Young people were fixated on peace and love and, of course, LSD. Now a lot of people glamorize the hippie movement. I'm not trying to do that. But I do want to make it clear that it was a very distinct and important moment in the history of American culture, especially the last hundred years. And it's no small thing that Sgt. Pepper was the most popular album at the time. Musically and professionally, the Beatles felt like they could do anything. They were given complete creative freedom for Sgt. Pepper, and it worked out extremely well. They pretty much immediately went back to work. In in that same May of 1967, they began working out songs for the soundtrack to their latest film, which would be called Magical Mystery Tour. Now, I'll get to the concept and the details of the film later in the episode, but it's important to know that most of the Beatles really didn't want to make another film. This was a contractual obligation agreed to by Brian Epstein, and they had to fulfill it. However, They had a lot of confidence, and they decided that the next film they were going to make was going to be written, directed, and produced entirely by the Beatles. Now, the Beatles were not filmmakers, and I think that pretty soon they'd find out that not everything they did turned into Sgt. Pepper. This period in the May and June of 1967 is where the Beatles recorded some of their weirdest work. Uh, One of the first songs they cut for Magical Mystery Tour was called Baby, You're a Rich Man, which is really a pure psychedelic song with a bunch of crazy instruments on it. I think it's actually a strong song and one of their more underrated works from this period. They also cut uh, another odd track called All Together Now, which was Paul's song, and it was intended to be a children's song, like Yellow Submarine. I think arguably the weirdest song Uh, that the Beatles have, maybe, with the exception of Revolution 9, is a song called You Know My Name, Look Up the Number. Now, I actually like the song, but I always kind of forget it exists because it was a B-side, and it doesn't really appear in a lot of compilations or anything. The song was inspired to be a comedy song. There's a bunch of silliness all over this one, and it's even like a little mini rock opera. It has a few genre changes, and the lyrics only consist of the words... You know my name, look up the number. All four Beatles play on this record, but interestingly, they invited a very high-profile guest to sit in with them and record something for the track, Rolling Stones guitarist Brian Jones. 
Now, for those of you who know about Brian Jones, he was obviously a talented guy with a bunch of potential. He was a gifted multi-instrumentalist, and the in the psychedelic 60s, he was known for adding that flair of unusual instruments to Stone's records like Ruby Tuesday, Paint It Black, a bunch of songs on their Satanic Majesty's request. But Brian Jones is really kind of a symbolic figure in rock and roll history to me. He actually formed the Rolling Stones and was originally known for being one of the only slide guitar players in England. He was a really bluesman by trade. He had potential as a player, but he couldn't really write songs. Uh, And Mick and Keith started to really take over the band at that point. And the tragic side of the story is that Brian Jones became such a hopeless drug addict that by 67, 68, he could hardly function as a musician at all. He was really just a nervous, dazed and confused guy, and as a result, his influence in the Rolling Stones dwindled until he was kicked out of the Stones in 69, and died just a few months later at the age of 27. The Beatles always liked him, though. He was a fun guy and hung around in their circles, so in the spring of 1967, Paul invited Brian Jones to come play on a Beatles session, expecting him to bring a guitar, but instead, Brian Jones, always kind of a wild card, brought a little saxophone at the session. Paul said of the recording session with Jones, quote, He arrived at Abbey Road in his big Afghan coat. He was always nervous, a little insecure, and he was really nervous that night because he was walking in on a Beatles session. He was nervous to the point of shaking, lighting Siggy after Siggy. I used to like Brian a lot. I thought it would be a fun idea to have him, and I naturally thought he'd bring a guitar along to a Beatles session, and maybe chung along to do some nice rhythm guitar or a little bit of electric 12-string or something. But to our surprise, he brought his saxophone. He opened up his sax case and started putting a reed in and warming up, playing a little bit. He was a really ropey sax player, so I thought, aha, we've got just the tune, unquote. The song itself wasn't released until 1969, but it was recorded during the Magical Mystery Tour period and definitely has that uh, 1967 flair to it. My favorite song from this period, After Pepper, was actually George Harrison's song called It's All Too Much. Now, George was pretty out there musically at this point, and if he was composing a song during this period, it was usually an Indian-style tune, or maybe he wrote it on an organ or the piano. Uh, This is to say he wasn't playing much guitar in 1967. But something must have encouraged him to pick up the guitar and really jam, because this song is very much a guitar-heavy song. It has a ton of trippy feedback and distortion, and George is playing over-the-top guitar in a way that he rarely did. I mean, we always know George as kind of a subtle guitar player. The song was originally recorded as a 10-minute jam, but they cut it down to six minutes and added some lyrics and a great melody. The song is actually about LSD and the kind of spiritual quest that Harrison was on at the time, and it has some components of a love song as well. It has some great lyrics, in my opinion, like, All the world is birthday cake, so take a piece but not too much. And one of my favorite lines in the song, kind of a funny line at the end, show me that I'm everywhere and get me home for tea. I think that more than any other Beatles song, uh, this one is overlooked and really underrated. It's one of their most jammy, psychedelic rock songs. Even George didn't really think much of it. After working a bunch in the springtime, the Beatles took some time off in June. 
Before they did, though, Brian Epstein came into the studio with what he thought was great news. He booked the Beatles on a show called Our World, which was the first live internationally broadcasted show via satellite, meaning the Beatles could potentially reach more people than they ever had at one time. Britain, who was spearheading the program, wanted the Beatles to be the main event. It was kind of their primary export. So Brian signed the deal and booked the Beatles for Our World. John was kind of annoyed that Brian had signed them up uh, for Our World without their permission. Uh, the culture in the Beatles at the time was that the band was responsible for their music and their career, and they had to approve of everything. Obviously, this wasn't really the reality. Uh, there was a lot of business going on that they didn't know about, but they were definitely cocky in, 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 this, area, in this era. Regardless, John volunteered to write a song for the program. Now, he wanted the song to have a message in line with the Summer of Love and the anti-war movement, but he also wanted the lyrics to be simple, for everyone to be able to understand. He wanted it to be really catchy but musically complex, and of course, he wanted it to be a number one. Essentially, he wanted to make the perfect Beatles song, not necessarily the easiest task. What John ended up coming up with and bringing to the band was the stunning All You Need Is Love. It is really a quintessential Beatles song. That June, the Beatles got to work on the song and nailed down a basic track for overdubs. Ringo played drums, but John played the harpsichord, Paul played an upright bass, and George played a violin on the basic track, which were kind of foreign to them. So the core of the song is pretty unusual, not really a rock and roll Beatles song. They then overdub their rock instruments on the track. George played rhythm and lead guitar, Paul adds bass, and John added his vocals. George Martin arranged for the song to have an extremely prominent string section, as well as a horn section kind of harking back to their style on Sgt. Pepper. And the intro to the song is actually the melody to the French national anthem, La Marseillaise. The plan was to use this recording for the Our World program, and the Beatles would mime the song. However, John, for some reason, decided he wanted to sing his vocals live. And then maybe in a bit of competition or excitement, Paul and George wanted their contributions to be live as well. Ringo and the classical instruments couldn't really practically be played live because they would cause far too much feedback and recording complications. They also wanted their final live overdubs to be featured on the single which was a pretty complicated task. George Martin was initially a bit frustrated because not only did he have to figure out a way to broadcast the performance of the BBC and transmit it to the satellite, uh, but he also now had to record them singing final overdubs for the song and then feature it on the single. This was definitely an added hurdle for the production team. The Beatles also wanted the performance to be a 60s style happening. So they decorated the studio, had the words love written all over the place in different languages. And of course, they invited a bunch of their musician friends to sit around them as they performed the song. The guest list included Mick Jagger, Keith Richards from The Stones, Keith Moon from The Who, Eric Clapton, them from Cream, uh, Graham Nash from The Hollies, and a bunch of other wives, girlfriends, members of the Beatles entourage. It was shaping up to be a pretty high-profile event, obviously, and on the day of the performance in July of 1967, the Beatles were really nervous and beginning to regret their decision to do their parts live. John was so paranoid about messing up his lyrics, and George didn't want to screw up his four-bar guitar solo. The time to perform, though, was quickly approaching, and the audience was enormous. At least half a billion people tuned in to watch Our World. The Beatles, who were about to perform somewhat live for the first time in a while, really could not screw this up. The stakes were high. 
The time to record was approaching really quickly, even quicker than they expected. George Martin was told that he had to start the performance about 40 seconds earlier than they thought. So the production team, who were in the control room shooting some whiskey for luck and to cool the nerves, had to scramble to hide the booze from the cameras and start the complex recording system. Somehow, they managed to do this right in the nick of time. And for the first time in some time, the world got to see the Beatles on their television sets. The band was caught off guard as well by the earlier than expected beginning. I mean, you can see in the video, John sitting uh, in high top stools surrounded by a bunch of hippies along with George and Paul and Ringo on drums. John actually still had gum in his mouth throughout the whole song, and you can actually hear some of his chewing on the final version. Now, when I watch the video for All You Need Is Love, which is on YouTube, so check it out, I actually get kind of nervous because I know the story behind it, and I know how nervous the band was for such a high-stakes performance. You know, they start off pretty anxious-looking, but it becomes clear to them that they're nailing it. Like, halfway through the song, they really start to loosen up, and they start to have a blast. After the show, the final edits were made, and All You Need Is Love was released, and uh, of course, it became a number one single shortly after. The Beatles took a much-deserved break for the rest of the summer. In the background of all this is a kind of changing culture and society. Of course, the hippie movement and the Summer of Love is in full swing right now, But there is also an obsession in the public, the media, government officials, etc., with the lives of these new rock stars and pop stars and the influence that they had on society. Specifically, people were obsessed with drugs. Drugs were kind of a taboo during this period, and the press just loved reporting on it, speculating, sensationalizing it. The people really liked the juicy gossip around all that. It was new, it was exciting, it was kind of scary for people to think about. Everyone seemed to have an opinion about it. Not to mention, in the 1960s, drugs were highly illegal. I mean, you could serve prison sentences in Britain for having marijuana ashes in your house. And as a result, in 66, 67, the police became obsessed with busting rock stars and drugs. It was kind of low-hanging fruit. The biggest bust around this time was actually the Rolling Stones drug bust in 1967. I'll surely talk about this a lot more when I cover the Stones. It was a huge moment for them. But long story short, Keith Richards and Mick Jagger were arrested in a huge drug raid of a party at Keith's place. George Harrison and Patty were actually at this party and were lucky enough to have left a few hours before the raid. Because the consequences were really severe. Both Mick Jagger and Keith Richards were giving, given actual prison sentences. Now, the drugs found were actually pretty minimal. Just some joints and pills, but it resulted in Mick getting almost six months in prison and for possession and Keith getting a year for allowing his house to be used for drug use. Brian Jones also got busted around this time in a separate raid and charged with possession of cocaine. None of them ended up serving the sentences. Keith Richards actually spent a day in prison before being released, but the public outcry was so incredible, and the courts overturned the prison sentences because of the musicians' public value, their abnormally harsh sentences, and the fact that these people were being targeted unfairly by the press and by the police. This could have easily ended the Stones, but it actually kind of calmed everyone down a bit in the public about their obsession with drugs. 
After this, a petition was signed publicly by all four Beatles and Brian Epstein uh, calling for the legalization of marijuana. Perhaps most controversially, though, in the June of 1967, Paul McCartney admitted to a journalist on television that he had taken LSD. Now, Paul had only done acid four times, which he actually mentions in the interview, and he said that the reason he told the journalist all about this was because he didn't want to lie, and he felt that if the journalist didn't want to share the information, or if they thought it was somehow destructive to society, the responsibility to share it or to not to share it was on the journalist and on the media. The Paul interview definitely made life a little more annoying for the Beatles. I mean, after the Stones bust, they were already really paranoid about being targets about of a similar bust, and they had a bunch of press now constantly asking them about their drug use all the time. Uh, they also kind of felt like Paul was trying to get attention by doing the interview. George Harrison said of the interview, quote, it seemed strange to me because we'd been trying to get him to take LSD for about 18 months. And then one day he's on the television talking about it, unquote. That said, the Beatles were all supportive, you know, the good team that they were. They all admitted to doing LSD publicly. Even Brian Epstein came out and said that he had tried it. And they all said that the world would be a better place if everyone took it, if politicians took it. Uh, it was kind of the hippie philosophy at the time. Um, Paul, during 1967, wasn't only doing LSD, though. He was actually pretty fond of cocaine, which was rarer at the time, much more illegal. The Beatles partook from time to time with Paul, but he ended up stopping in 67, 68 because he didn't like the way the comedown made him feel. John, Ringo, and George would all become very heavy users of cocaine in the late 60s through the 70s and struggled with addiction to the drug for some time. That, however, is a story for another day. Now, all of this was happening when John and George were starting to fall out of love with LSD. And they wanted kind of a more valuable spiritual experience. George, who of course was looking eastward, was pretty conflicted. His spiritual teachers were very much anti-drug, and George wanted to move in a more clean direction where he could really explore his identity without drugs. Um, with the exception, of course, of marijuana and cigarettes, which were an integral part of his daily routine. His last draw with LSD, though, came when he visited San Francisco during the Summer of Love. George walked around the Haight-Ashbury district with heart-shaped glasses on, strumming his acoustic guitar uh, with his wife Patty and some friends around him. Now, George went there to kind of take in the whole hippie movement and see the utopia firsthand, so of course he was uh, tripping on LSD with all of his friends, but he started to notice that all these hippies and these people started to notice that it was George Harrison. They started to crowd him and start to follow him around. All of a sudden, a big mob of people were surrounding George and Patty, just trying to touch him or talk to him. He was surrounded by a mob of people who just wanted to take in a beetle, wanted to be in the air of a beetle. And he had to really scramble to get out of the situation and suddenly feeling like he was in Beatlemania again, the feeling of running away from crowds and being scared that you might be torn apart by a mob. This really gave him kind of a sour taste in his mouth regarding the whole hippie movement and LSD takers. I mean, he kind of expected that he would be welcome just as a fellow human, but he was still viewed as a famous beetle, and that really didn't sit well with him. And this was really a pivotal moment for George and was really the beginning of the end of his LSD usage.
By the summer of love in 1967, the Beatles had been using LSD for about two years, so the novelty had kind of worn off and they had gotten pretty much all they could get from it while uh, it seemed like the rest of the world was discovering it for the first time. So they were kind of over the whole overly hippie philosophy and everybody should tune in uh, type of stuff. Uh, the Grateful Dead famously weren't even in San Francisco uh, for the Summer of Love. They left in 1966 because they thought the scene was getting overly commercialized. Uh, and, and they're kind of the quintessential hippie LSD San Francisco band. So they were kind of in the same boat as the Beatles. Now, they were still in uh, search of a more spiritual existence, especially John and George. Uh, that's kind of how the Beatles discovered meditation on this quest for a more spiritual, uh, enlightened life. Patty Boyd, who was already really interested, along with George, in Eastern religion, found out about this spiritual leader named Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who was kind of the giggling little teacher of transcendental meditation. Transcendental meditation, or TM, is a form of mantric meditation. He was speaking in London in 1967, and George, Patty, Paul, Jane, John, and Cynthia all went to see what he had to say. They were absolutely enthralled with what, he, what they heard. The Maharishi told them he could train them to be truly enlightened, to experience real awareness and bliss through the practice of meditation. Now, Ringo couldn't make it to the meeting because his son was being born, but he was also pretty interested in this type of stuff, and he recalled how much seeing the Maharishi impacted his other three bandmates when he recalled a voicemail that John Lennon left him. Ringo said, quote, I came home and put on the answer phone, and there was a message from John. Oh man, we've seen this guy, and we're all going to Wales. You've got to come. The next message uh, from George saying, wow, man, we've seen him. Maharishi's great. We're all going to Wales Saturday, and you've got to come, unquote. Sure enough, all four Beatles and their wives, some of their friends, like Mick Jagger and Marianne Faithful, they all went to Bangor, Wales, to do a 10-day meditation retreat with the Maharishi in August of 1967. Now, there's a sad story that Cynthia Lennon didn't make the train because the police didn't know that she was with the band and thought she was a fan, not a member of the Beatles' entourage, and she later said that this moment watching John and the rest of the gang get on the train and go to Wales was kind of symbolic to her of her marriage, so kind of a sad um, moment there. The Beatles were thrilled with their new guru. They admired him so much, and really they took his words to heart, and they believed, honestly, that he could give uh, them kind of the meaning of life. Now, we would find out later the Maharishi uh, is kind of a con man, but the Beatles at this time were really, really into it. Unfortunately, tragedy struck just two days into their trip with the Maharishi. Brian Epstein had died suddenly of an overdose at the age of 32. Now, the Beatles were completely shocked by this. Their manager, the guy who pretty much helped them in all of their years to get famous, to become professional, he got them their record contract, uh, and... and they really admired him. He was a friend. He was in their inner circle. He was dead. And I think a lot uh, of sh shock and grief kind of poured in all at once. I think there was a lot of regret uh, for maybe some of the things that they said to him or the way they treated him. I mean, I don't. I really don't think that they expected this. They knew Brian had troubles. Brian had become increasingly reckless with his drinking and amphetamine use, especially after the Beatles stopped touring, which gave him a less consistent schedule and kind of a more 
uh, toned-down role with the Beatles. Brian was also having trouble uh, in his sexual life. Homosexuality was illegal for most of his life and extremely taboo. He was also kind of addicted to thrill. He was hanging out in more and more dangerous situations, secretive situations, prostitution, and he would, you know, more on more than one occasion, he was blackmailed, beat up, or robbed. And Brian had recently checked into a kind of low-level rehab uh, to deal with his amphetamine use. I mean, he kept it pretty under control, so the Beatles weren't overly worried, and, and they just thought, you know, Brian will figure it out. But the Beatles, upon hearing the news, had to cut their trip with the Maharishi short there and then. Brian was actually planning on meeting up with them uh, in Wales for a few days. They also had to give a press conference after, where a very shocked John Lennon said, quote, We loved him and he was one of us. Maharishi's meditation gives you confidence enough to withstand something like this. Even after the short amount we've had, we all feel it. But these talks on transcendental meditation have helped us to stand up to it so much better. You don't get upset when a young kid becomes a teenager, or a teenager becomes an adult, or when an adult gets old. Well, Brian is just passing into the next phase, unquote. Now, John would later dramatically change his tune on these events and the Maharishi, which I'll get to later in the podcast. But... This kind of shows you just how captivated John and the rest of the Beatles were by the Maharishi at this time, and how it doesn't really seem like they're dealing with the death of Brian Epstein. The Beatles left Maharishi promising that they'd go to his school in India to really learn the practices of meditation, and they would, but in the wake of Brian's death, they kind of had a lot of business to get to. They had to go back to London and figure stuff out. The Beatles couldn't go to the funeral because if they did, it would have been mobbed by fans. And after Brian's death, they had to start getting more involved in the business side of things. This is, in my opinion, one of the key reasons for their breakup. Once business got involved, the Beatles just had fight after fight after fight. They also found out that a lot of Brian's business dealings uh, were pretty bad for the band. I mean, there was a lot to untangle there, and I'll get to that later in the podcast. Now, there was also... A definite leadership vacuum when Brian died. Brian had always been the one to rally the troops, to get them to do a movie, to tell them when it was time to go back into the studio or on the road. After Brian died, though, there was a malaise in the band, and Paul was the one who took the reins. He got the band to continue their projects. Now, this move by Paul wasn't, like, spoken of or decided. He didn't become the manager. I think it just kind of happened that he filled that role. It was just what his personality type was. He wanted to work, he had a vision, and he was always like that about his music. But it began to be that Paul was increasingly headstrong about the overall direction of the band. And that accelerated after Brian's death. Uh, there's a big debate in the Beatles world. Some people, like Jeff Emmerich, for example, say that Paul saved the Beatles, right? Uh, there were other people, you know, like the Beatles themselves, who consider themselves to be Paul's equal, and they would become really irritated by Paul's leadership. John later said, quote, I was still under a false impression. I still felt every now and then that Brian would come in and say, it's time to do a record or time to do this. And Paul started doing that. Now you're going to make a movie. Now we're going to make a record. And he assumed that if he didn't call us, nobody would ever make a record. Paul would say, well, now he felt like it. And suddenly I'd have to whip out 20 songs. He'd come in with about 20 good songs and say, we're recording, and suddenly I had to write a fucking stack of songs, unquote. 
The truth is obviously more complicated. It wasn't just Paul nagging everybody to break to, until the breakup, but Paul's changing role in the band and the rest of the band's attitude about it is definitely something we're going to keep talking about. The first song recorded after Brian Epstein's death was John Lennon's I Am The Walrus, one of the trippiest songs ever. The band was still in a haze of sadness after the death of Brian, and when George Martin heard the song uh, for the first time, he was pretty disrespectful of it. He thought the lyrics were absurd and the music was weak. He acted like John had really gone too far on this one. It was probably more hurtful because of how much the band was grieving. Now, John said the song was actually written, the lyrics were actually written to confuse his fans who overanalyzed his lyrics, saying at the time, quote, let the fuckers figure that one out, unquote. When the band recorded the basic track, Jeff Emmerich said that the band was really just off, saying, quote, even listening to the record today, you can hear that they're distracted, that their minds are not really on what they're doing. I distinctly remember the look of emptiness on all their faces while they were playing I Am The Walrus. It's one of the saddest memories I have of my time playing with the Beatles, unquote. George Martin eventually added some great strings on it, and it became one of the Beatles' masterpieces in my opinion. I don't really hear what Jeff Emmerich is saying. Uh, I think uh, that's because he was the engineer, so he was really close to the music. The band also cut Hello Goodbye, the beautifully melodic Paul song. This is a great pop song, and of course it was the A-side single and went straight to number one. In the studio, George had a much more prominent guitar part, but Paul decided to remove it, which was kind of a point of tension between the two, although you can hear it on Anthology too, and I, I think it really adds a lot to the song. Lennon was really, for some reason, not a fan of Hello Goodbye, and was allegedly mad that Walrus was not the lead single, saying, quote, Hello Goodbye beat out I Am The Walrus. Can you believe that? I began to submerge, unquote. He later trashed Hello Goodbye uh, pretty relentlessly all through the rest of his life. Fool on the Hill, another really strong Paul song included for Magical Mystery Tour, along with Your Mother Should Know and the instrumental jam called Flying. Uh, George added Blue Jay Way, and Paul also had the title track, Magical Mystery Tour. Magical Mystery Tour is not really an album. In Britain, it was released as a double EP uh, with about six songs to be the soundtrack for the movie. And in the U.S., it was released as an LP with uh, all the Magical Mystery Tour songs and the previous singles from Pepper, Strawberry Fields, and Penny Lane. It's what you can find on Spotify today. The movie itself was a mess, honestly. The band, mainly Paul, wanted to do a movie uh, kind of loosely based off the California native Mary Prankster's magical bus ride, uh, mixed with uh, a Liverpool coach bus ride, which was kind of a staple of their childhood, where they had a psychedelic journey through the English countryside, and include funny situations and musical breaks. Now, there are some highlights in the film. I think there are some great music videos that came uh, from this project. But overall, the film is pretty aimless, and it's rushed, and kind of unprofessional, and it doesn't really have a, a really good story or anything. George and John would later talk about how the film was all Paul's fault, and they were just going through the motions at this point, and to some extent that was true, but they were pretty involved in it, and they were kind of interested in the project at the time. But the low quality of the film was kind of unanimously agreed upon. It was released on Boxing Day, December 26th, the day after Christmas, in England, uh, mainly so it could get a huge audience. And the viewers at the time and critics pretty much unanimously hated the film. Now, it was the Beatles' first big flop. The uh, critics just tore it to shreds. And I think that was because, I think it was a little out there. Uh, maybe it was kind of 
acceptable and understandable in their circles and for a lot of young people and for Americans. I mean, the Summer of Love was something, yeah, people saw on television, but it wasn't uh, all-encompassing in Britain, you know, like the way it was in California or even parts of the United States. Uh, I mean, people in England were really more into the avant-garde and the art uh, and literature. I mean, it was more that type of movement where in the United States it was kind of you know, free love and, you know, hippy-dippy kind of fun stuff. But the British audience really didn't connect with it. And uh, the lashing that it got in the press really, I think, damaged the Beatles' confidence in a way because they had, this was their first test without Brian Epstein, and they very clearly failed. Uh, And I think that was a, a point of embarrassment for the band. 1967 was a big year for the Beatles. They were the heroes who recorded Sgt. Pepper and broadcasted All You Need Is Love to the world. Unfortunately, their manager died in 1967, and it fundamentally changed the pecking order in the Beatles, and they received their first failure in the eyes of the British press. After Magical Mystery Tour, they'd pack their bags and head to India, where they would write some of their best songs. Not really as the Beatles, though, but as John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr. The Beatles... We're starting to separate. Thank you so much for listening to Rock Band's podcast. Don't miss next week. We're going to talk about the Beatles' trip to India and the beginnings of what became the self-titled Beatles double album, or what we call the White Album. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Follow us on Instagram at Rock Band's Podcast and share us with all your rock and roll loving friends. Until next week, listen to Magical Mystery Tour and listen to The White Album.